Hello. Welcome to the myths and history of Greece and Rome. Chapter 94, A New Capital. Well, after last week's little detour into the history of Christianity and the Roman Empire, it's time to go back and find out what Constantine's been doing. Constantine the Great came to the throne by force in 306 AD. In the following 18 years, he grabbed more and more territory by slowly watching his rivals kill each other off and then moving against those that were left and defeating them himself. With the death of Licinius, he achieved it all. Constantine was the emperor of the entire Roman Empire. Now though, it was time for the tricky bit. He'd won all the wars, how could he win the peace and leave his stamp on the world as only the greatest emperors have? There was one thing that Constantine had that no previous emperor had had the chance to use. He had a new religion to work with. Constantine first tolerated Christianity and then actively supported it. Unfortunately, Christianity, as we know, like the empire itself, was not united. As we discovered in the last chapter, Christianity was prone to schisms. Constantine wanted the Christians to agree with each other and everyone to agree with him. But the Christians just weren't playing the game. Theological debate has always been a fundamental tenet of Christianity. To this day, the Christian church is far from united. This principle of disagreement was there from the beginning. Christians simply could not agree with each other about the basics of their faith. In the early 300s, as we found out last time, the big problem was that a Christian priest called Arius of Alexandria had declared that Jesus was not equal to God. Nope, Jesus was made by God, so he couldn't be as important as God himself. Most of the rest of the Christians thought Jesus and God were part of the same thing, so they violently disagreed with Arius. But Arius had many supporters. The priest from Alexandria had been banished from his home city by the local bishop and had to run to be protected by Licinius. But now Licinius was dead, and there was warfare between the disagreeing Christians. In 324, religious strife threatened to tear the newly united empire apart, and Constantine was not going to stand for this. The emperor tried to solve the issue by writing to both sides telling them that the disagreement wasn't important. Both sides laughed at this and continued to disagree. Each Christian locality had its church council known as a synod, and each synod was either on the side of Arius or declaring against him. Those supporting Arius were known as Arians. Constantine decided the only thing he could do about it was to get all the leaders of the synods together in one place and have a big chat about the problem and then agree how to solve it. In 325, the emperor called the Great Council of Nicaea, held at one of his imperial palaces, and paid for it himself. The bishops talked and argued and fought, and talked more and argued more and fought more. Constantine listened and got frustrated they didn't seem to be able to agree, so he came up with a solution. He introduced the concept that God and Jesus were of one substance. Nobody was too sure what this meant, which could result, hoped the emperor, in both sides thinking they had won. Sadly, and inevitably, this didn't work at all. The Council of Nicaea realised it had to come down on one side or the other, and in the end, Arius was declared to be wrong and banished again. The Emperor, despite the lack of unity, had achieved a result of sorts. He was very pleased with himself, and generously gave every bishop who attended the Council a fantastic present of gold. They were all very impressed indeed. Here, clearly, was an Emperor who meant business. Another thing the council did was agree the date of Easter. Then Constantine turned his attention elsewhere. Diocletian had decided there was no real capital of the empire. The capital was where the emperor was. This, though, was slightly impractical. The machinery of government had to reside somewhere. 
As a result, there were in practice quite a few capitals, Milan and Trier in the west, Nicomedia, Thessalonica and Antioch in the east. Constantine, though, wanted his own capital. A great empire needed a great city as its centre. But what was he to do? Rome was too far away from anywhere and none of the other capitals were quite suitable. Constantine always thought big. In fact, he thought very big. Well, he thought, if there isn't a suitable capital already in existence, I'll just have to build my own. The emperor decided that the small city of Byzantium was in the ideal position. The site lay on the land route from Europe to Asia and the seaway from the Black Sea to the Mediterranean and had in the Golden Horn an excellent and spacious harbour. The city sat out on a peninsula so it could only be attacked by land from one side. The city was already a thousand years old when Constantine first saw it. Byzantium had once been great but had fallen on hard times during the early reign of Septimius Severus when it held out against him and was punished. It had never recovered its prestige. Until now. Legend has it, the emperor marked a spot near the old city centre where he wanted the centre of his new city. Here, he ordered the building of a monument called the Million, or the First Milestone. All distances in the empire were to be calculated from this point. He marched west from the Million through the fields, eventually stopping where he reckoned he had marked out enough space for his new capital. This became the west edge of the new city. A set of defensive walls were built here, running north to south, joining the Golden Horn to the Sea of Mamara. The legend says the emperor himself traced out the length of the walls with his spear. When his men questioned the huge length of the city walls, he said to have replied, I shall continue until he who walks ahead of me bids me to stop. The building of the city took just six years. Constantine didn't have enough time or enough decent artists and sculptors to fill it with beautiful art and monuments. So, what did he do? Well, remember what he did to decorate the Arch of Constantine. He did the same here again. Wonderful treasures, sculpture and works of art were stolen from the other great cities of the empire, including Rome. Constantine was the emperor, and if he wanted to steal things, then he could. He could do exactly what he liked. Greek statues from Athens, Egyptian art from Alexandria and beautiful things from across the empire were taken from their homes and brought to the new city. Fantastic treasures found their way there from all corners of the empire. Constantine also knew that his people loved games and chariot racing, so he built a magnificent hippodrome where they could be staged. Great churches were constructed in the new city, including the first great Christian church, St Irene's, and the biggest church in the world, St Sophia. But it was not just a Christian city, Many pagans made their homes there and all religions were tolerated. Constantine recreated the Senate in the city and persuaded senators to leave Rome and set up home in the new capital. This was pure symbolism. The Senate had long since ceased to be relevant, but the charade had to be maintained. In the city centre was a large forum called Constantine's Forum and a large column with massive bronze statue of the emperor staring down at it from its pinnacle. This was called the Founder's Statue. The column is still there today, but it's been damaged by fire and is now called the Burnt Column. Some wood, thought to be part of the cross on which Jesus was crucified, had been brought back from Jerusalem by Constantine's mother, St Helena. This, called the True Cross, was placed near the Million. On the 11th of May, 330, the new capital was consecrated. And we all know what it was called, don't we? Yep, the new capital was called Nova Roma, which meant New Rome. Soon, though, and with the emperor's nudging and blessing, it came to be called by everyone by a different name. Everyone knew it was Constantine's city. 
Everyone knew there would be no magnificent city there without Constantine, and everyone knew Constantine wanted to be known as the builder of this great new city. So they didn't call it Byzantium anymore, and they didn't call it New Rome. No, the new city was known to everyone as Constantine City, or Constantinople. It would grow and grow, and eventually would be the capital of the empire for over 1100 years. Today, the city still stands, the largest city in Europe with a population in excess of 11 million. Some of its buildings date back to Roman times. It is a bustling, teeming metropolis and one of the most vibrant places on earth. The great capital built by Constantine is now called Istanbul. The city straddles the boundary between east and west and reflects both cultures equally. If you ever get the chance, go there. It is a truly remarkable place. A few years before the completion of the new capital, Constantine decided to make a triumphant trip to the old capital. In January 326, he, his wife Fausta and his two eldest sons left on a voyage to celebrate his 20th year in power. It has to be said that this family holiday was not a great success. Constantine's eldest son, Crispus, was a brilliant general and much loved by the people of the empire, who saw him as an obvious successor. He had fought bravely and heroically during the civil wars and was already a Caesar, although being a Caesar didn't mean as much as it had during the Tetrarchy. He was wildly popular. It is said that wherever Constantine had hundreds of fans, Crispus had thousands. Constantine was a jealous man and didn't like the fact that his brave and handsome son was more popular than he was. None of this, though, accounts for what happened to the pin-up of the empire. In 326, on the way to Rome, Crispus was tried on spurious charges in court on his father's orders. He was found guilty and put to death by cold poison. Later, Constantine also had his wife killed. She was locked in a room in a very hot bath and left to suffocate. Something that Fausta had told lies about Crispus wanting to kill his father so he could become emperor. Crispus was not her son. He was the son of Constantine's first wife, and Fausta may have wanted to get rid of him so that her own sons would be emperors instead. Maybe the emperor had her killed when he found out what she had done. Maybe his mother Helena had Fausta killed in revenge. These are just guesses. Nobody really knows what happened. None of this mattered to Crispus and Fausta, as both ended up very dead indeed, and Constantine arrived in Rome in an extremely bad mood. Think of the moods of Aurelian at Palmyra, or Galerius when he learned about Maxentius's rebellion, and then multiply these bad moods by a thousand. Constantine didn't bother to hide how much he hated Rome and the Romans, and they didn't hide the fact they didn't think much of him either. He dedicated a new church, the Basilica of St Peter, and swiftly left. Goodbye to Rome, and good riddance. The empire remained peaceful for much of Constantine's time in power. Later in his reign, the emperor began to become a little bit too pleased with himself. He started to call himself the equal of the apostles, the twelve apostles of Jesus, and he also started meddling in the affairs of the church. He was continuously trying to make the Christians unified. Even the great Constantine, of course, could not make Christians agree with each other. We should not think too badly of this failure, though. The Christian religion is even more divided today than it was then, so nobody else has managed it either. Many Christians, including Arius himself, died in various gruesome ways because of what they believed or didn't believe. The emperor, politically skilful as always, recognised that he had inherited a system which worked. He wasn't interested in being one of four rulers, but the rest of Diocletian's administrative brilliance could stay. After destroying the Tetrarchy, Constantine left most of Diocletian's other reforms in place. 
provincial governors still had no troops. The dioceses and smaller provinces were left untouched. The army still consisted of border troops and proper field legions. Each Augustus or Caesar had a Praetorian prefect, who, the, who was the most important administrator in his part of the empire. He had no troops, though, as the Praetorian Guard had been abolished. The armies were led by a magister militum, which meant master of the soldiers. Sometimes there were two for each emperor, a, ma- a magister peditum, master of the infantry, and a magister equite, master of the horses or cavalry. The only government reform that Constantine did not carry on was the redundant tetrarchy itself. Diocletian had formed the tetrarchy because he thought it would work well for running the empire and because he thought it would mean there would be no problem with succession. He was completely right with the first thought. The tetrarchy worked very well indeed when it came to running the empire. Diocletian was disastrously wrong with the second thought. As we have seen, the tetrarchy didn't work when it came to succession. If the tetrarchs didn't get on, or if the tetrarchs had sons who wanted power, then there was bound to be civil war. Diocletian didn't have many relatives, so he didn't know what it was like to have a large family arguing over who should be in power. Constantine, though, had a huge family. Constantius Chlorus had had two other sons with his second wife, Theodora. Dalmatius and Julius Constantius, Constantine's half-brothers, were kept well away from power. The great emperor was not having members of his family getting in the way. Power was his, and his alone. Constantine also had three surviving sons. He wasn't very inventive when it came to thinking of names. Nope, all he could think of for naming his boys were names that sound remarkably like his own. Constantine, Constantius and Constans were all named Caesars at very young ages. To make it even more complicated, Constantine raised the two sons of Dalmatius, Dalmatius and Hannibalianus, to the rank of Caesar as well. So, there was one Augustus and five Caesars, and so six Praetorian prefects. The Caesars, though, were not like the Caesars of the Tetrarchy. They had no real power. Julius Constantius also had sons, but both Gallus and the youngest member of the family, a boy called Julian, were small children and not given any imperial rank. The younger Constantine was sent off to Gaul, and Constans was dispatched to Italy, although when he was sent he was still only a child, so he was under the protection of the younger Constantine. Constantius was sent east, and Dalmatius to Illyricum. Hannibalianus was going to be given a tiny kingdom which Constantine intended to take from the Sassanids when he waged war against them in 337. The Sassanid War, though, never happened. The Sassanid king, Sharpor II, had been declared king before his mother actually gave birth to him. This is the only recorded time in history when the reigning king of anywhere was not yet born. He managed to survive childhood and, by this time, was an adult and keen to regain some of the Sassanid territory lost to Galerius when the Tetrarch captured the Sassanid royal family. Constantine was trying, and failing, to get Sharpor to protect the people in Persia who had converted to Christianity. This helped with the required propaganda as the war approached. Because of it, Constantine hoped the Christians in Persia would help him win. But, as we said, the war never happened. In 337, the emperor was in Asia Minor getting his soldiers ready for the battle. He was as energetic as usual. He briefly returned to Constantinople to open a new church called the Church of the Holy Apostles, where he intended to be buried. Towards Easter, he began to become very ill. He went to Hellenopolis to look for a cure, but became even sicker. He started the journey back to the capital, but only got as far as Nicomedia, and there, finally, he was baptised as a Christian. He dressed in white 
and vowed never to wear the purple again. And why did he wait so long to be baptised? Why, if he was a Christian, didn't he do this much earlier? The later Emperor Julian said it was because he knew being baptised would rid him of his sins and he wanted to make sure he'd committed all of his really bad sins first. Killing your own wife and son is pretty sinful after all. Constantine, though, was later made a saint. Constantine the Great died in Nicomedia on the 22nd of June 337. He was 65 years old and had been emperor for a very, very impressive 31 years. His body was placed in a golden coffin and taken back to Constantinople. Constantine was a vain and superstitious man and he had given no instructions as to who would rule next and there was nobody in the empire who wanted to make that decision. So, for three and a half months, the Roman Empire was ruled by a dead man. Yep, a dead man. Orders were given in the name of Constantine, even though he was cold, still, sealed in a gold box, and very, very dead. Eventually, the army decided enough was enough, and they declared they were not going to be ruled over by anyone but the sons of Constantine. At last, the boys would have real power. None of the Caesars had been given any real tuition in the arts of government or tasted power before. Nobody knew if they could cope with real power. Only the younger Constantine had had any genuine authority in the last 13 years and even this had been strictly limited. What the rule of the sons of Constantine would mean for the empire was anyone's guess. What it would mean to Dalmatius, Hannibalianus and the rest of the descendants of Constantius Chlorus was very quickly made very clear. Next time, we'll see what happens to the Empire when Constantine's boys are unleashed upon it. If you're enjoying the podcast, then please head down to the website www.mythandhistory.podbean.com. One of the joys of podcasting is receiving feedback and answering questions. If you have anything you'd like to say, or anything you'd like to ask, then please contact me via email, mythandhistory at gmail.com, or friend me on Facebook, Paul Vincent Myth and History. And also, if you get the chance, I'm always grateful for a good review on iTunes. So, have a great couple of weeks, and I'll speak to you next time.